Well, good morning. Welcome to Temple Baptist Church. My name is John Nugent. I get to be your youth minister here. Um, for those of you who may not know me, I'm not Dr. Reggie. I told uh, the earlier service, I'm not really sure how things happen, really, in his, in his mind. I do know this. I know that he plans his schedule far out in advance. Usually he knows what he's preaching on months and months out. So when he came to me about four weeks ago and said, Hey, John, would you, like, would you be able to preach like this, 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 coming, like this Sunday that, that is now? I thought, I'm not sure, first choice. Because you knew a long time ago you were going to be missing today. I don't know how many people he asked before me that told him no, or maybe he had someone lined up that had, I don't know how far down the line I am, but you'll have to suffer through with me today, all right? Um, but I do want to do this. Um, I, on April the 29th was a Sunday. Dr. Reggie came and he preached a sermon and when we were still talking about David. And um, he talked about this, this idea of, of how good it is to have mighty men, that everyone needs their mighty men. It was a wonderful sermon, as all of his sermons are. And so between the services, we were standing right over there by that door. And I called him and I said, hey, I just want you to know how disappointed I am in you. And he said, what? I said, you started one of my favorite chapters in all of God's word. And you stopped halfway through one verse. You got halfway through verse 8 and stopped. So today I'm finishing it for him. All right. So today, if you'll find 2 Samuel chapter 23 is where we're going to be together today. Um, I want to kind of read through this chapter with you. We're going to kind of take it in almost a reverse order. We're going to read the end of the chapter and, and then go back to kind of the middle of the chapter. But I want to talk through these, these stories with you. Some of them are my, some of my very favorite stories. Um, my dad is a preacher, um, is a pastor, and, and growing up, I remember hearing some of these stories from him, and, and the, some of these are just kind of near and dear to me, and I want to share with them with you and, and kind of hopefully get a, a point across with us today that I think is, is happening here in God's Word. But 2 Samuel chapter 23, you and I are going to start in verse 18 together. It says this, says, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zerari, was chief of the thirty. Now, we've got to stop for a second. I need you to use your imagination with me this morning. I'm used to talking with teenagers who are fairly good about using their imagination. Sometimes they're imagining and thinking about things that have nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Um, but, but, but I need you to use your imagination with me this morning. So this idea that there's this man, Abishai, who's the brother of Joab, son of Zerubbabel, um, he was chief of the 30. Now, here's what's happening. The 30, we're talking about David's mighty men. David is a military man. He goes, and for the nation of Israel, he is taking over lots of the promised land that has been promised to the nation of Israel for a long time. And, and the nation of Israel is kind of at its, like, at its best, at its pinnacle, when David is king. And they've taken over, and they've won battles and wars, and they've done all these things. But there's, there's, there's 30 men who stand out among all the rest, kind of a special forces group almost that's with him. And of these 30, he's going to tell you some of their stories in this chapter. I just, I love a good story. And there's great stories here. And he's telling you about some of those men. Verse 18, we have Abishai, who is chief of the 30. It says, he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and he became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. So here's this guy, Abishai. He has a spear with him. The enemy comes and it says that he kills 300 of them by himself with a spear. That's pretty amazing. Until you read the rest of those verses which talk about this idea that, that he was really great, but he wasn't part of the three. He was chief of the 30, 
but he wasn't part of the three. Which makes me ask the question, so who are the three? Like this dude's shish kebabbing 300 people. Um, like what, what, how, what do you got to do to be part of the three? Because they, they have to have done something that's absolutely amazing if he's not part of them. Let's keep reading. We get a few more here. Verse 20. It says, Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kebzeel, a doer of great deeds. It says he struck down two aerials, or mighty men of Moab. And he also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man, or, or a mighty man again. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and Benaniah went down to him with a staff, snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. So here we have Ben and I. This is his story about how he, these two mighty men. And in every army, it seems like there they're, they're are people that almost kind of stand out. You go back to stories like David and Goliath, like everybody kind of has their champion. It's this idea that's happening here where, where this man out of the nation of Israel comes and it says these two men that kind of stood out from the enemy army, he took them on and, and, and took them down. And then it says that he went and, and fought a lion. We've got several stories about people like Samson and even David talking, taking on lions and killing lions, and, but, but it kind of adds some details to you for the story. So when you're using your imagination with me, it says that he took on a lion in a pit. As if to tell you, like, by the way, he couldn't run away. Like, they're both in the pit together. There's, there's no running. Like he, not that he would run from a lion anyway. The lion, but, but there's no running away. But it says, and on top of that, it was snowing. Reminds me of like stories that my grandfather used to tell me. I'm like, yeah, in my day, we used to walk uphill to school three times a day and six times a week because we went to school that often. And it snowed every day in Louisiana. I'm like, really, Grandpa? He went to school that often? I don't think you can count very well for going to school that much. But, but he's, he's there telling these stories, and, and it's kind of like that's happening here. Like, hey, by the way, it was even snowing. Like, just to let you know how, how much of an amazing feat that this is. But then it goes on to say, but he's not part of the three. He was really awesome, but he's not part of the three. So again, the question is, who are the three? And what in the world did they do? Well, Let's go backwards. 2 Samuel, still in chapter 23, but go back to verse 8 with me. It says this, These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, attacked me tonight. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. So we've got the first guy, and he's killed 300, and he was chief of the 30 but not part of the three. Now we've got this guy who is part of the three. He didn't kill 300. Add 500 to that. He's killed 800 with a spear. Now again, just use your imagination with me a little bit. I don't know how this happens, I don't know where this happens. In my mind, there's some sort of open field, but there's at least 800 people that are trying to kill this one dude. And he's by himself and he has a spear. And it says that he killed 800 at one time. Not taking a break, not like, hey, time out, guys. I'm going to need to come over here and catch a breath. I need to drink a water. If y'all could just stop right there. I know I've killed like your brother and everything, but like, hang on a second. I need, like none of that, just at one time, 800. I don't know how that happens. Like in my head, I cannot work this out in my mind, like how 800 people don't get like an advantage over one guy. I don't know if he's like up on a hill where they can't come in behind him or like, I, I don't know how this works in my head, but like, I can't figure it out. 
how one of them doesn't get in there with like a sword or something, or at least throw a rock at him, something, right? It lets me know that God's on his side. If there's something that begins to separate these three, it's definitely that God is on their side. And God's the one working in them and through them. Because none of this can, absolutely none of this can happen without God on their side. So that's part of what's at least going on to separate these three. Here's the next one. It says, next to him, among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahuai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. So now we're talking about another great thing. We have Eleazar, which is a wonderful name for those of you looking for children's names. Eleazar is there and he says that he's with David. And it says that they defied the Philistines. So again, imagine with me, ready? Most of the time, a lot of these battles, they're taking place where kind of one army is on one side of a hill and one army is on the other side of a hill. There's a little valley in between. You'll find that all throughout the Old Testament. So they're kind of there. And because of the natural surroundings, you can kind of shout things. And the other people can hear you, hear that echoing, hear it off the rocks and all those things. And, and so they're defying one another. I don't know what that is. I don't know if they're talking about each other's moms. I don't know what's going on, but there's something being exchanged back and forth for them to say something about what they're going to do to the other army. Something's being said there. And it says that he's with, catch who he's with, he's with David and the rest of the Israelite army. But when it comes time to fight, when it comes time to like, let's meet in the middle here and let's see whose words were really true, it says the Israelite army fled and they ran away. But for him, he said, nope, I told you that I was going to kill you all. And even if I got to do it by myself, I meant what I said. And he goes down and he does just that by himself. Some geography comes into play here that makes this story even more interesting. Where they are, you can kind of parallel these scripture with what's happening in Chronicles. Um, the, the, almost the same story is happening there, but you kind of get some place names and that kind of stuff that's going on. Where they are, this, it says where they're gathered there, this valley where they're kind of gathered, is, is very quite possibly, if it's not the same valley, it's extremely close to where David and Goliath fought each other. You remember that story of David and Goliath and they get kind of to each other and Goliath is kind of saying, hey, what am I? You're coming at me like, like with a dog, with this young kid. Like, what, what's going to happen there? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take him and feed his bones to the birds of the air. Like, and he starts to begin to, to trash talk with David. And what David says back to him, he's like, uh, that's great that you think that, but, but let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to knock you down. I'm going to kill you. And you're going to be like a, a big feast. Like, I might be a snack, but you're a feast and the birds of the air, they're coming to, to, to dine on your bones. And they kind of had this exchange, kind of back and forth, before David does what he says he's going to do. And I can't help but think that for, for, for Eleazar as he's there, and, and they're kind of having this exchange back and forth with the Philistines, and, and they're, they're almost at the same setting, in, the, in a very close place to what, what had happened before. He, he definitely knows the story of David and Goliath like most of us do. And, and he's there, and he, I can't help but think that he remembers that. He says, I remember a time when us and the Philistines, we were kind of gathered at the same place. And I remember what God did then. And God, God's still God. 
I meant what I said, and I'm going down there, and I'm gonna, I'll make this fight. We'll do this. And it says that he fought until his hand clung to the sword. It's this idea of, like a, of, a, of a blister that's happening, but, but so big that it almost as if it, it kind of wraps around his, where he can't let go of it. It's like stuck there, like that much fighting and that much going on. But then it ends with God brings about a great victory, as only God can do. Because again, one man against an army, but God's on his side. And God brings about a great victory. Then we got the third guy. This one's probably my favorite. It says in verse 11, it says, Next to him was Shema, the son of A.G. the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the, still, from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. Again, imagining this with me, probably what has happened is that the Israelites have had this, this plot of ground, this, this section of land, and they, they have decided, you know what, we're going to plant a crop here. It says lentils, which is basically peas. And they have planted their pea patch, and it is there in front of them. And they have they've done all the work. They've planted it, and they've weeded it, and they've, they've done all the things. They've watered it. They've done all this stuff to have their peas. I don't like peas that much. I like some peas. But there's no peas that I know of that I'm willing to give my life for. I spent a summer once picking purple hull peas. If you've ever picked purple hull peas, um, you know that, that your hands probably still have a little bit of a hint of purple, even if that was 20 years ago. Um, they just, they, they have, there's something about that. Um, I remember spending that summer picking purple hull peas, and, and even now, I'm sure they taste wonderful, but I just can't eat them. I like peas. I'm okay with peas. Purple hull peas, they're not, mm-mm, because I still remember looking down my hands looking like some kind of smurf that needed air like I it just like I, I can't do it but for him they're they're there they're, it's it's harvest time the enemy army kind of comes over the hill in my mind as if to say hey thanks for doing all the work now we're going to take your crops and everybody runs away except for Shema. for him he said you know what these are my peas they may not matter to anybody else but my peas, I care about. And my peas, you're going to take over my dead body. And so it says that he gets and he stations himself in the middle of the field. That's dumb. Like, that is not good military strategy, right? Like, if, if, even if I decide I'm going to, like, risk my life for the peas, I'm at least going to hide behind a rock or a tree or something so that when they're there all bent over picking their peas, I can jump out with the element of surprise, you know, ha-ha, like, here I am. But... It says he takes his stand in the middle of the field as if to say, hey, I'm here. You're not taking the peas unless you take them from me. The summer I spent picking peas, I, I, I did it wearing shorts and a T-shirt with a five-gallon bucket. You usually don't go pick peas with a sword. I'm guessing that Shema is much the same way. In my mind, he's got some sort of like burlap sack Maybe stretched over to one shoulder, a big, you know, sack there. He's taking his peas and he's, you know, sticking them in his sack. And he's, he's there, like, looks up. Oh, the Philistines. That's a problem. Oh, everyone ran away. That's a problem. Not too big of a problem, though. I got this. And as they come, I don't know what he's got with him. He's not carrying a sword. He's not wearing armor. He's not, like, he didn't pull his helmet out of his back pocket. And like, all right, let's do this. Like, that, that's not, it can't, it can't work that way. So what that tells me is whatever he had 
was enough for God to work with. That if God's going to bring about a victory, it's about God. It's not about him. I don't know if he takes his burlap sack and starts swinging it above his head. Like, hey, come on, come on with your sword. I'm going to hit you with my peas. Like, I don't know. If he shells a few and throws them at him, I don't know what goes on there. One day I'm going to sit down in heaven with Shema and I'm be like, hey, can you give me some details? Like, I, how, how did, what, did you pick up a stick? Did you just hit people with your, I, what happened there? I don't know. All I know is what he had was enough. Which is a great, wonderful challenge, and we could probably spend the rest of the time just on that idea. That if God calls you to do something, if God inspires you to do something, if if there's something that you know to do that is right, then you are already equipped with what you need for God to work about victory in your life. You do not need to be more equipped. You do not need to be more trained. You do not have to be in a special place. You don't have to a special time. You don't have to have certain people around you. Right now, where you're at, whatever God's calling you to do, you're ready to do it. So we have these stories about these three that definitely kind of set them aside. They're taking on whole armies by themselves. Like that, that to me, would, would think to myself, like, yeah, these are dudes. Like, they probably have hairy arms. Like, these are, these are, these are guys, right? But it's not really their individual accomplishments that set them apart. I think it's something bigger than that. Now, they've definitely got their list of individual accomplishments. They can sit around the campfire and be like, hey, you killed 300 with a spear. That's cute. I killed 800. Like, they have those stories, but I don't think that's what it is that sets them apart. Let's keep reading together. We've got verse uh, 13. It says, Three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Agilom when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephraim. And David... Then in the stronghold and in the uh, and the garrison was in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, "Oh, that someone would bring me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate." Then three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, carried it, and brought it to David. Stop right there for a second. Again, we're imagining together this morning the story taking place. And so David is kind of in hiding at this time. He's, he's, in, he's in a cave. Um, the Philistines have the upper hand at this point. So he's there kind of hiding away. These three guys who are together, I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know, don't know who it is they've been beating up lately. But they kind of roll into the camp. And they're there in the camp and they, they overhear David. Because it's not necessarily that it's explained to us that David is saying this to them. It's just almost the idea that they overhear David is saying, man, I wish I had a drink of water from the well that's in Bethlehem. I remember that Bethlehem is David's hometown. It's where he's from. It's where he grew up. Like that, that, that's his stomping grounds. And there's something about water that, that just tastes different wherever you go. Some of, some of you know, like I, I, where I grew up in, in southeast Texas, my, my family, we, we have well water that's there. And it tastes different. To me, it's a little bit better. And some of you know what that's like. I, we recently got back with our junior high students from New Orleans. Um, the water there does not taste like the water in Jasper, Texas, where my parents live. We went with high school students to Canada this summer. And the water's really pretty there, but it doesn't taste the same. Ruston has its own, like, water. Like, it, it all tastes a little bit different. It would definitely be so for this time. And he's thinking to himself as he's hiding away, man, I wish I had a drink of water. From, the, from, from this specific well that's by the gate. 
I don't know if it's deeper so the water is colder. I don't know really what's going on there, but he wants water from this well that's by the gate in Bethlehem. And these three mighty men say, you know what? If that's what the, if the king wants a drink of water, king gets a drink of water. Let's go. So I don't, I don't, know, how, I don't know how this happens again, but these three men go to get a drink of water. Now what you need to understand again with the geography that's happening here, they're about 22, 23 miles from where David is to where Bethlehem is. So it's this idea that they are running a marathon, basically, to get to Bethlehem. They get there, and I'm just imagining to myself that when they roll into town, that they're probably not strangers. I mean, they've killed off like a whole bunch of Philistines, probably relatives of the guy who's standing there keeping guard, you know, at the gate, and like, oh, hey, three guys are coming. They're big. Look really big. (gasps) I know him. He killed my cousin. And it's probably not the idea of, oh, hey, you guys, you've killed lots of people before. Come on into the camp. You know, hey, you know what? Let us get out of your way. Um, here, if you need, you need access to the well, that's fine. Go for that. I don't think that's what's happening. If I'm the Philistines, I'm thinking to myself, I got all three of them together now. We got a whole garrison of our army. Like, we are all here now. They're going down. I imagine that this water does not happen without a fight. And in my head, I've got like one of these dudes like working the well, like turning the little crank, you know, like I lift the bucket down, hang on, the, rope, the rope's not tied to the bucket. Keep fighting, let me take care of things a little bit here. Gets it down and gets his water, you know, back up. Like, hang on, guys, like just a few minutes more. Hey, there's a guy coming over there. Could you kill him? Because he's looking mean at me. Um, and get that out, and then he has his bucket of water. And in my mind, it's like, hey, I got my bucket of water. I'm going to fill it as, as high as I possibly can because the king wants a drink of water. I don't know how much water he wants, but he wants water. I'm bringing as much as I possibly can. Hey, all right, I got the water let's go and probably fight their way out. Probably one of them, you know, maybe sword in one hand, bucket in the other, trying not to spill it. I don't know how it all happens, but in my mind, it's, it's almost comedy probably taking place there. And he gets out of town. Then he has to run another marathon back to where David is. And in, in the way that the story takes place, is almost as if it happens like immediately, the way that we read the story. I don't think that, that, that in all reality, this, that you're talking over almost 50 miles round trip. That's several days journey if they're walking. But it doesn't seem like that in the story to me. I, I'm, in my mind, they're running. King wants a drink of water, I'm giving him a drink of water. And they get back and they get to David and they're like, here, here's your drink of water. You wanted a drink of water? Here it is. Let's go back to verse 16. Three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. I enjoy people that come with me on, on mission trips, chaperones. Secretly, though, a favorite of mine is when I take someone big with me. Like, if I, like, like Mr. Kevin's come with me. He's a large fellow. I enjoy having him with me. Ted Hall has been with me. Um, that's just really, really fun um, because he has a really loud voice as well. Um, but, but honestly, one of my favorite is a, is a, is a guy named Gerald Gordon. Gerald was an offensive lineman um, for uh, Ole Miss University. 
Uh, when, when I was in Mississippi, he took a week every summer. Wherever we went on a mission trip, he came with us. Gerald was, was somewhere around like 6'8 or so, um, and he was big, um, really, really big, really big. And in my mind, when I'm thinking about these three men, I think like someone like that. I mean, if you're going to take on an army, you can't, you can't be some wimpy guy. Like, you at least got to, like, in my head, they're big. And so I imagine in this story, when they get there and they bring this water to David, these three gigantic men, and they're like, here, king, you wanted water? Here's your water. And I can only imagine their facial expressions and their body language as David takes this water and he, he looks at this and he's like, this is exactly what I wanted. This is what I'm longing for. This is the best thing in the world to me right now. Here, God, you have it. And as he pours it out, there's just something in my mind that I would love to have seen those facial expressions. Like them just standing there like, okay, that's fine because you're the king. We just ran 50 miles and, and fought a whole army for you to have that, but because you said you were thirsty and you didn't even take a sip out of it, just poured it out on the ground in the desert. So that's gone. That's all right. You know, you're the king. You know, whatever it is, you know. Um, but hey, don't you, like, in my head, I'm, I'm at least, I'm one of these guys. Hey, um, David, um, we love you. You're the king, God's chosen person. Like, we, we're there. We're, we're on your side. But you said, couldn't you have at least, like, maybe taken a sip? Like, just a little bit of it? Like, we didn't drink any of it. We've been running for 50 miles um, today. Um, in the last, you know, few hours, um, we didn't drink any of it because, you know, you wanted it. And couldn't you have at least, like, taken a sip out of it first? Like, just, like, okay, all right, now the rest. Like, here, here, God, you can have the rest. Like, that, that still would have been a great picture. Like, we still would have got the point that what you're telling us is that our best belongs to God. Like, we, we still would have got the picture there. We still would have understood that it's not about you as an earthly king. It's not about us and our list of accomplishments. We still would have understood that it's about God if you would have poured most of it out. But you poured it all out. And there's part of me that they have to have a relationship with God. Or else they'd be really mad. They have to understand the idea that God deserves our best. Or else they're really mad. And not three individuals that you would want to be really mad. But you don't see in Scripture that they are objecting in any shape, form, or fashion. It's almost as if the idea is that, that David takes this and he says he pours it out to the Lord. It's almost as if it's like some sort of like mini worship service that's happening. Like they all gather around like, all right, offering to God. Okay, I, I get it. Because God, it's about him. God gets the best. Not just the best, but he gets all of the best. I think maybe it's, it's these three guys, it's, it's what they do for their king that sets them apart. But I think it's their understanding of the king of kings. I think it's their relationship with God is what really, really sets them apart. John Acuff um, asked a question that, I, that I've loved and, and read it a few years ago, but he asked this question, are you willing to trade the starring role in your own story for a supporting role in God's story? 
And I love the question because it makes complete sense. Because most of us, we, we, we think that we are probably more than we really are. Working with teenagers, I love to do some research and, and reading about um, the different generations that kind of come through. It's, um, this is year 18 of, of youth ministry for me, um, which you know, started when I was 12. So, but we, we read through this, and I've almost got to relearn about every five or six years how they work. I read something not too long ago, a couple of years ago, about this idea that, that a lot of teenagers believe in this thing called an artificial audience. That they're really into social media and those kinds of things because in their head that there are more people that are paying attention to that than what they really are. Or when something embarrassing happens, that they're, they're really, really embarrassed because they think everybody's watching. When in all reality, it may or may not be that big of a deal. But then I thought, you know what, we're kind of all that way, I think. It's not really just teenagers. We kind of all think that a, that a lot of the world is about us. And that we're kind of the most important thing going on in, in our story. And we kind of think that we're kind of the, the star of our own movie that's going on. But this question about are you willing to give up a starring role in your own story for a supporting role in God's story. It makes complete sense. And the answer, of course, should be a million times over, yes. Of course. Because when we get to be a part of God's story, we get to be a part of something that's much bigger than ourselves. Which is also something about people that are about 30 and under. Are very much concerned with, with being a part of something bigger than themselves. That's why even a lot of corporations, they'll, they'll gain uh, you know, popularity because they maybe sell you a pair of shoes, but they're also giving a pair of shoes to some kid who doesn't have shoes. Because they're like, oh, I get to buy this and I get to be a part of something that's bigger than myself. There's, there's a desire for that, which is great for me because I get to tell them about how to be a part of the biggest story that there is in the whole world. I plan on living to about 112. It used to be about 118, but now I'm down to 112 because, you know, my family's from South Louisiana and, and we, we eat well, lots of meat. Probably knock six years off. So about 112, all right? If I live to 112... At best, my story is temporary. No matter how much that I get to do, no matter how many people I get to see, no matter how many lives I get to be part of, like whatever it is, at best, my story is temporary. But if my story becomes attached to God's story, if I get to be a part of his story and his plan and what's going on with him, then I get to be a part of something that's eternal. These stories about these men, when it, when it ends their, their story within God brought about victory. It's them being a part of a bigger story. It's them grasping a bigger picture than themselves. It's them being a part of taking the absolute best and giving it all back to God that sets them apart. So what I really want to challenge you with today is this, this, this question of are you willing to give your best back to God? Not just part of your best, but all of your best back to Him. God gives his absolute best to us. God gifts each one of us with, with, with different things. I love, love watching this past week. We got to take 7th, 8th, and 9th graders to New Orleans, Louisiana. And I love getting there because when we got there, we kind of had this plan um, in our heads of, of this is what we're going to do. And, uh, we have a, a daycare that we're going to be doing kind of vacation Bible school stuff in the morning. And um, it's going to be great. Um, we, we get there and we realize it's not really a daycare. It's... 
uh, kind of a day camp is what they call it, and, and it's ages like first grade through about 10th grade. And so there's a section of kids that we're about to teach Bible stories to and that kind of stuff that are older than the students that I brought with us. And it's not like there's like 20 of them or 30 or 40 or it's between 130 and 140 kids that are there. And I have a group of 7th, 8th, and ninth graders that we're going to do this with. I love it. Because the first day was absolutely overwhelming. They were like, oh my gosh. And the second day was a whole lot better because we actually had a plan that we, plan we came with. We had to throw that one out. So oh, we got there and, and, and much better the next day. Third day, awesome. Fourth day, absolutely amazing. We get stories of, of like one of our girls that got to lead a little girl to Christ while we were there. Like a, a student leading a little girl to Christ. Not like one of our adult chaperones, student leading students to Christ. We sat around on Wednesday and I asked them, hey, well, give me some things that you've, you've seen God do in you or through you this week. And they're sitting and telling me stories. One little boy raises his hand. He's like, I got something. I was like, all right, what you got? And he's like, I got to teach 137 kids a Bible verse this week. I'm like, cool. You're like 12 years old going into seventh grade. Um, and you get to make the statement, I got to teach 130 kids a Bible story this week. Like, do you realize like most adults can't make that statement? And the little girl raises her hand and she's like, I got to teach Bible stories to those same 137 kids. I got to share the gospel with them. I got to be a part of something that is absolutely gigantic. Like, again, you realize how big of a statement that is for you going into like ninth grade that you get to say, I taught 137 kids the gospel. I got to hear some kids who had questions and, and be able to answer those questions so that they understand what it means that God came. And he sent Jesus to die for them, and he rose again from the dead. And if they put their faith in him, then they can have eternal life. I got to explain that over and over this week. And I think God, like, it's, it's interesting to watch, especially with, with younger kids, because you get to see, like, God has gifted you with this. God has given you this talent. God has, like, you have a different talent. But it's still, like, like you still have God-given ability and talent like, that is there and given to us. We have so much that God gives to us. Some of you, it's jobs, and some of you, it's finances. Some of you, it's family. Some of you, like, all this stuff. But a lot of times, the stuff that God gifts us with, sometimes that's what gets in the way. I sit and I run around my three boys, and it's, it's already starting to get to the point where I'm like, all right, their schedule almost runs my schedule. And a lot of times, I want to carve out this, this time that I know I should be giving, like, to God and, and my best to Him. And, and sometimes my, my plans get hijacked by three little J boys. <sighs> I'm like, good grief, for some of you, it's your job, and you know that it's a gift from God because you have this platform where, where, where you know that God is wanting to share the gospel with people, and you have the opportunity to do that. And, and sometimes but that job gets almost in the way of, of, of the very thing God has pushed you there for, or finances that, that, that you've been blessed with, that God wants you to be giving out to people and, 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 and helping people and, and proclaiming the gospel through the way that you give and your generosity. And, and sometimes even those, that, that finances almost becomes a burden in, in some ways. And for some of us, it, it's, it's, uh, you have a lack of those things. Like, I don't know what I can do with, with what I have, but God still has, I promise, given you a, a, a gift of influence over some sphere of people. But a lot of times what God has given us kind of gets in the way. But if we take a second, we really realize what God has given us, aside from all of that kind of stuff, just the idea that God comes and he gives Jesus Christ to us. That he says, I'm going to not just give you some things that are really good, I'm going to give you my absolute best. 
I'm going to give you my one and only son to come and live perfectly for you. Not just the best, I'm going to give you perfection. And he comes and he lives that perfect life for us, teaching us so much. And he dies for us and raises again from the dead, conquering sin and death itself so that we, by putting our faith in him, can have a relationship with God. Not to just know about God, but we know God. And, and then we can have eternal life with him for absolutely forever, for all of eternity. When, God, when we know what God has done for us, the, the response that's here that we find in the story of, of God, I'm going to give you my absolute best and not just part of it. I'm not going to hold anything back for myself. I'm going to give you everything. It's the only logical response. I want to challenge you with that idea this morning. Ask that question. Are you giving God your best? Not just are you giving God your best, but are you giving God all of your best? holding nothing back for yourself because you know you're just a part of God's story. You're not asking God to be a part of your story. You're not inviting Jesus Christ to come into your life and be like a part of it. You're inviting Jesus Christ to come into your life and save you because he's going to be Lord and he's going to be in charge of everything and you're just going to be part of his story. Are you giving absolutely everything, all of your best, back to him? not what needs to change so that you are. I talk often with teenagers and about the, the opportunities they have. And it's always fun when I see someone who's playing soccer and it ends up that like five of their friends from the soccer team end up coming to church and a couple of them join our church and like that's always a cool thing. Stories of dance lines and, and football teams and all the stuff that they get to use as their sphere of influence. I'm trying to help them understand that the reason they're on this team, the reason they go to this school, the reason they're a part of this stuff is, is not so, it's not about them. It's a platform that God gives them so that they can proclaim the gospel. One of my favorite stories is, is one of our, our girls who's a senior now, and, and I think two years ago she came and she told me on a Wednesday night, she's like, hey John, I led someone to Christ at school today. Like, that's awesome. How'd that happen? Well, we were in the bathroom during a fire like drill or lockdown drill. It's like, that doesn't add up. Like, you were in lockdown drill and you were in the, like, yeah, lockdown drill happened. We were in the bathroom. Like, we weren't going anywhere. We didn't know if it was real or not. We're not stepping out into the hallway. Like, we stayed there. We're both scared to death. And, you know, I was kind of calm. And the other girl in the stall next to me was crying. I didn't know she was there until she started crying. And like, and we got to talk. And I was like, hey, like, it's going to be all right. How you know it's going to be all right? Like, because I got Jesus. We can explain to her like the hope that we have. Like if absolutely everything goes bad, I still got Jesus. So eternity for me, it's secure. How about you? I need that. And listen to a girl ask Jesus Christ to be her savior in Rustin High bathroom. Pretty cool. Whatever your platform is, even if it's a public restroom, you've got one. But are you giving everything back to God? Are your blinders on? thinking everything is about yourself. These men have great stories to tell about themselves. That's about what they're doing for God. About giving their best back to God. That sets them apart. Let's do the same thing. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. and God, we... Um, are excited that we get to be a part of your story. Your story is so much bigger than ours. Ours is temporary, yours is eternal. 
Ours is flawed, but your plans are perfect. God, when we're a part of what you're doing, we're a part of something that is indescribably big. So God, I pray today that you challenge us, remind us that God, it is a privilege to give our our all back to you, to give everything back to you, holding nothing back for ourselves. Because that's when we get to be a part of the biggest story. Thank you for that reminder. I pray that you challenge us, that God, if there's things that are in the way of that, you help us to deal with those things. Because God, you're bigger. You deserve it all. God, bless this time as we respond to you and your word. We look forward to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray.